Well, please open your Bibles to Romans chapter 11. We have one message left in Romans 11, and this is a message that very often gets subsumed with the other verses that are around it and doesn't stand on its own, but I, I don't understand why a preacher would not give these verses their own message, because even though there's not a lot of doctrinal content within Romans 11:33 to 36, there is a lot that is here that brings great joy to our hearts. In fact, all of the doctrine that we've studied in Romans 1 through 11, and we've studied a lot, it's a, a packed part of God's Word, it's all been leading up to these verses, actually, because the truth that God entrusts us with, the truth that He teaches to us, is, is given to us for a purpose, for a reason. And while holy living and the godly life is, is a big part of that reason, even the, the holy living and the godly life that we do has a purpose that is bigger than, than just that. And that is the purpose for which we have been created, the purpose for which we are on the earth, the reason why we draw breath and, and have our, our moment here is to glorify God. That's why we're here. We're here to glorify God and to be able to keep that in mind, to not get distracted by all the minor purposes that are in our life. And some of those minor purposes are, are pretty major from a human perspective, the purpose of loving your family, the purpose of, of doing your work and contributing to society. But those, those human purposes, those mankind-centered purposes, are just a, a small part of a, a larger purpose for why we are created. We exist for God. We exist because of God's will. And the knowledge of God and the knowledge of truth that is given to us in Scripture, really it all leads up to Romans chapter 11, verses 33 to 36. So would you read those verses in your Bible to yourself as I read them out loud for the group now? I can't read it with the passion with which Paul wrote it, you can imagine, after writing Romans 1 through 11, and being the instrument that God had used to unveil and unfold all of the gospel truths, all of their implications, and to show how many of the false things that have been spoken against the gospel of Jesus Christ are not true. And as Paul has both laid out the truth and defended the truth, and now having been that tool to write the most important book in history the cathedral of the Christian faith that has been called, you can see that, that he's overwhelmed. He's kind of exhausted. He's filled with joy at the same time that he is filled with a sense of his own smallness. And so he writes in Romans 11, verse 33, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been His counselor? Or who has given a gift to Him that it might be repaid? For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be glory forever. To Him be glory forever. That is the heart cry of the person who loves God. That's the heart cry of the person who gets the Bible. Who understands what it's about. To Him be glory forever. Amen. Now, you might find that your heart is not as strong in that theme as you would like it to be. I think you're probably in good company there. I think we all 
wish that we had more of this heart, that we had a passion for God's glory, that we had the zeal for God that we have for other things. You know, we all have things that we value very much. And if those things are threatened, and you find out how important those things are to you because you'll drop everything and you'll leave whatever it is that you're doing in order to, to protect the one that you love, in order to protect what you've worked so hard to accomplish and achieve and to build. Uh, a man protecting his business, a man protecting his family, a mother protecting her daughter. That these actions that come out in, in moments of crisis reveal to us how passionate we can be. And yet, when God's name is blasphemed, when, when the work of God is threatened, when temptation comes and, and you are tempted to undermine the work of God in your life and what He's been doing to try to build you up and make you into someone that can glorify God, do you have that same passion? Do you have that same zeal? Are you as protective of the work of God in the church and in you as you are of these other things that are so important to us? See here, when we come to Romans chapter 11, verses 33 to 36, this is a doxology. Doxology is a special word we use to describe the giving of glory to God. And you find these throughout Paul's letters, over and over again throughout his letters, and not just Paul's letters, but throughout the Bible. You have doxologies. You have the passionate ascription of praise to God, the desire for God to be glorified. And God is glorified, in all righteous activity, all righteous deeds, all righteous thoughts, all righteous words. But the doxology that we have, it, it comes from the doctrine of Scripture, that the truth of God is what enables us to glorify God. And our title for the message today, Doxology Beyond Theology, I don't want you to get the idea from that title that I'm denigrating theology in any way. Now, theology is what we do here. It's, a, it's what I spend most of my time doing is, is teaching you what does the Bible say. And we're all about the theology of God. We're all about the theology of Christ. We're all about the theology of redemption. We're all about the theology of, of sin and mankind, about what God has done and what he's going to do, future things and eschatology. We have a love for doctrine in this church. But doctrine is not loved for its own sake. Doctrine is loved for what it is able to do, what it is able to accomplish. And what doctrine is able to accomplish is glory to God. And the doxologies of Scripture, while built upon the, the truth that is conveyed in this holy book, it goes beyond the truth. Doxology, the glory to God, is something that goes beyond even what we have understood or what we have grasped. Doctrine takes us as far as our mind can go and then the heart goes on even further than that in praise and glory and worship of the God who has revealed himself to us. So we are going beyond the theology of Romans here in verses 33 to 36, but that's not to say that theology is not important or that theology is something that we're free to disagree on. Theology is the foundation, and doxology is built upon that foundation. And the better your foundation is, then the more you can glorify God. 
Now, it doesn't always happen that way. Some people have a good knowledge of doctrine and yet do a very poor job of glorifying God. And that's something we must be on our guard against. Remember what Paul wrote to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 5. The goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. And we have a goal in what we're doing here. When I'm instructing you from the Word of God, the goal is love. And love is what we have in Romans 11:33 to 36. Love for God. If you have a passion to glorify God, then you have a love for God. And you can have a love for the Bible, you can have a love for teaching, you can have a love for theology, you can have a love for people, but if you don't have a love for God, like Paul writes here in Romans 11:33 to 36, you really don't know what you're supposed to know. You've heard it, but you don't understand it. You've heard it, but it hasn't entered in and made the change in your heart that it needs to make. Paul starts off here in Romans 11.33 with what we call the doxology. And the doxology proper is actually at the very end, where it says, to him be glory forever, amen. And everything before that is just describing him that we want to glorify. And so the whole thing is bringing glory and honor to God And it's doing so by pointing out the depth of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. And there's an exclamation point there in our English translation and also after the next sentence because you can sense the passion in the text that Paul wrote as he effervesces with this praise to God at the end of a very difficult doctrinal section in Romans 9 through 11. Now, as we've gone through Romans 9 through 11, you remember that the doctrine that Paul has been dealing with there is the doctrine of Israel. Israelology. Who is God's nation? Are they still God's nation? What's God's plan for them for the future? Why are so many of the Israelites not Christians? Paul's been unfolding and dealing with this doctrine, and in so doing, he's been talking a lot about the doctrine of election, a difficult doctrine for theologians to discuss and debate where you've got the Arminians, you've got the Calvinists, and then you've got other people trying to explain how is it that God can be in total control of everything that is happening, bringing everything to pass according to his plan, his predetermined counsel that he had with himself before the world began, and yet at the same time, God can judge the wicked for the wicked deeds that they've done when God is the one who is predestined and predetermined all that comes to pass. And people have a a head-scratching time with ideas like that and figure out, well, how do we make sense of man's responsibility and God's sovereignty. God is in control, and yet man is responsible for the evil that he does. And as we recognize what the Bible teaches on the subject of Israel and on the subject of election and divine predestination, we recognize that while we can understand what God says, we recognize that the truth that God is telling us in some ways goes beyond human comprehension. Oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments. How inscrutable His ways. Unsearchable and inscrutable are near synonyms. They mean basically the same thing in the Greek and in the English. 
inscrutable. It means incapable of being searched into and understood by inquiry or study. It's from the American Heritage Dictionary. You can't search it out. You can't fully understand it no matter how much time you spend studying it. And this is what Paul says about God's judgments and God's ways. Now remember, Paul is the one who is the instrument of God writing under the inspiration of Scripture to reveal to us the judgments of God, the ways of God, the plans of God. And yet as he's written about it, he's written about mysteries, things that could never be known or discovered unless God was the one who revealed them to us. And as he's writing about these things, Paul himself recognizes that there is a depth to these truths that goes beyond what any human being can understand. As I said in our Sunday school hour, the Bible and the truths that are contained herein, they are a pool that a child can wade in and an elephant can swim in. There's safety in these waters for the simple, for those who are young, for those who are immature, for those who are not sophisticated in in their reasoning and argumentation and don't have all the categories and frames of reference to be able to understand complexity of ideas. There's a safety in the Bible for children to be able to wade in these waters and not drown. And yet, for those who are mature, for those who are intelligent as far as human beings go, there's a depth here that goes beyond what any person can fathom. You know, you look at the, the ocean depths and how mankind has attempted to get down into the, the lowest trenches in the bottoms of the ocean and we have to design special gear and special submarines and and just how dark it is and how mysterious and there's still all these things that are undiscovered in the bottoms of the ocean and and God has created the oceans in that way in order to be an illustration for us of of the truth. This word depths here is that same similar idea of the word that we have for for the ocean depths. There's an inability to get to the bottom of things, an inability to fathom What is God's reality and God's truth? As wise as you might be, as smart as you might be, as well-educated as you might be, as much sound doctrine as you can hear, you will never get to the bottom of God's ways. You'll never get to the bottom of God's judgments. They are unsearchable. They are inscrutable. Now, when he says the depths of the riches, there's three things here. There's riches, wisdom, and knowledge. And it could be that all three of these things are describing the same, that wisdom and knowledge and riches are are three ways of describing the truth of God. That's very, very probable. Or it could be that, as in other places, the word riches here refers to God's grace, his mercy, his kindness, because that's often the riches that Paul is talking about, is the riches of God's grace in mercy and in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. So if he's thinking... Of that, well, then he's pulling in some of the truth that he's explored in Romans 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, those first eight chapters that are all about the amazing grace of God towards sinners and talking about the riches of God's grace and kindness. Or it could be, like I said, that really these three are all describing the same thing, the depth of the knowledge of God described in various ways. I don't know which one Paul necessarily has in mind. Bible teachers will debate as to whether or not this doxology is mostly just in response to Romans 9 through 11 
since that's the section that it's concluding, or whether it's a doxology that is really coming out of Paul's heart based upon everything that he's written up to this point. That's my personal favorite. I don't, don't have a lot of good reasons for it, but I think that would make sense that here at the end of Romans 1 through 11, you've got this doxology that summarizes everything that Paul has been laying out through the course of the letter. Now, look at verses 34 and 35 with me. Who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been his counselor, or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? Now this quotation from the Old Testament is really helpful here because what Paul does is he shows us that the reason why God's judgments are unsearchable and his ways are inscrutable, they're past finding out, is because the Lord's wisdom and counsel comes from himself and from himself alone. No one can understand God's judgment or ways because his wisdom is innate. Now, innate wisdom is something that only God has. When we're talking about the attributes of God, you have the communicable attributes of God, the ones that he can communicate to his creatures, the ones that we share in. God is love, and we also are able to love. But you also have the incommunicable attributes of God. Now, Normally, wisdom would be one of those communicable attributes of God because we are able to learn wisdom. God is wise, and if we listen to God, we can also be wise and share in that attribute of God. But when you put the word innate on the front of the word wisdom, well, that shows you a certain kind of wisdom, a certain element of wisdom that belongs to God and God alone. Because God is the one who has wisdom that he has not received from anyone else, from anywhere else. And that's where God's wisdom is different from our wisdom. Our wisdom is received. We get our wisdom from other people, or in this case, from God. But God, he didn't get his wisdom from another God. He didn't get his wisdom from any creature. He is the creator, and he has wisdom innate within himself. I like to think about this. This is a a fun meditation exercise, think about what it would be like to have wisdom in oneself the way that God does. You know, God doesn't have to look up anything. He never has to Google anything. God doesn't have to call anybody up on the phone to figure out, what do I do in this situation? What do I do now? God has never had to do that. You know, we learn our wisdom from the people who came before us. Wisdom didn't start with you, and wisdom doesn't end with you. You are built upon the wisdom that comes from others. You know, we learned physics from Newton, who learned mathematics from Pythagoras. And you've got a, a long line of thinkers, and that's what we've been learning in our philosophy adventures, that these philosophers, they didn't create anything, they got it from others, and then they passed it on. Well, God is not that way. God is one who knows innately. And that's why his wisdom is unsearchable and inscrutable. And the quotation here is from the book of Isaiah. Again, not surprising. Isaiah chapter 40, where we had our scripture reading, is where Paul is quoting there in verse 34. I'd like to go back to Isaiah chapter 40 with you. Isaiah chapter 40, 
and verses 13 and 14. As you're turning to Isaiah, I'd like to remind you of a quote that comes to us from Mark Twain. At least that's who it's attributed to. We don't know for sure. Most people want to serve God, but only in an advisory capacity. Most people want to serve God, but only in an advisory capacity. We'll find out here from Paul's quotation that God does not need any advice. He does not need any advisors. And anyone who would be an advisor to God is just a proud fool. A proud fool. Look at what God says here in Isaiah chapter 40, verse 13. Who has measured the Spirit of the Lord? Or what man shows him his counsel? And then notice verse 14 also, which Paul doesn't quote, but is here in the context, and I'm sure Paul had in mind. Whom did he consult? And who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice and taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? Who was the teacher for God? God didn't have a teacher. God didn't need a teacher. That's what makes him different and unique from every human being that's ever been on the face of the earth. You had a teacher. You had many teachers, many people that that you learned from who made you understand, who taught you the path of justice, who taught you the way of knowledge. God does not learn because God knows. Now when it says in verse 13, who has measured the Spirit of the Lord, that's kind of an interesting phrase, something to, to meditate, think about. What does it mean to measure the Spirit of the Lord? When we think of the word measurement, it reminds me of what Paul said back in Romans chapter 8, oh, the depths of the wisdom and knowledge and riches of God. Depths are something that you can measure, but the depths of God are immeasurable. And the Spirit of God, as Paul talks about in other places, is the one who searches out the depths of God. Mankind might be able to now, in our current time, discover the depths of the the deepest trench in the ocean. But no one has discovered the depths of the deepest parts of God's knowledge and wisdom. Those things are truly unsearchable. And so the Spirit of God is the only one who knows the mind of God, who is able to plumb the depths, the infinite depths, of the mind of God. And so the challenge here, who has measured the Spirit of the Lord, is, well, no one has. And when you measure the Spirit of the Lord, then that would put you in a position where you were able to pass judgment upon the Spirit of the Lord. Because if you can't measure it, you can't understand it. And if you can't understand it, you can't pass judgment. And so every person who passes judgment upon the ways of the Lord who wants to serve God in an advisory capacity, who would come to God and say, yeah, God, what you've done is is pretty good, but you know, it'd be better if you did this. Every person who takes that stance before God is setting himself up above God and proclaiming to be able to measure the Spirit of the Lord and to show Him, God, man's counsel. What a foolish thing to do. With whom did he consult? And who made him understand? Now, I've told you before that when Marduk, the head of the Babylon pantheon, ancient so-called God, when Marduk was creating the world, so to speak, he had to stop in the middle of his work to go consult with Ea, the all-wise, and so that he would you know, how to know how to make the world the way that it was supposed to be. 
And so Marduk, the head god, so to speak, for the Babylonians, he had to go and consult with some goddess that was before him. But there's no one before God. There's no one after God. And he doesn't consult with anybody. He doesn't need anyone's counsel. Come with me to the book of Proverbs. Proverbs chapter 16, verse 2. I'd like to see Proverbs chapter 16, verse 2. As Paul is quoting here from Isaiah, talking about who has measured the Spirit of the Lord, you find this same phrase here in Proverbs chapter 16. This is the context here, verse 2. All the ways of a man are pure in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the Spirit. So you don't weigh the Spirit of the Lord... The Lord weighs your spirit. He searches to the depths of your heart. You don't search the depths of his heart. He understands you. You don't understand him. And so let's keep this, let's keep this straight. He's God. You're not. He's the creator. You're the creation. He understands. You don't. This is one of the wonderful things about the Bible that makes it clear to me that the Bible is, in fact, the Word of God. Because the Bible gets this order straight. It keeps man as a creature and God as the creator. And this creation-creator distinction is essential to understanding. And it's something that the Bible zealously guards, even though mankind constantly rebels against it. And you won't find another book that keeps this perspective that keeps this balance and that's what is evidence of the bible's unique inspiration also paul adds on to his quotation from isaiah chapter 40 verse 13 job chapter 41 verse 11 so from proverbs come back a little bit further to the book of job you've got the writings in Scripture, Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes. These are the books of wisdom in the Old Testament. And Christians have well loved and well used these pages in their Bibles for centuries. And here in Job chapter 41, we come to the conclusion of this book of wisdom, which has so much to say about the unsearchable wisdom and knowledge of God. This is a book that is about why do bad things happen to people? Now, I left out the good there because, you know, the Bible doesn't say people are good. So people have the question of why do bad things happen to people? And then this this book is part of God's answer to that question. And as Job and his friends have debated the issue as to, you know, whether or not Job had sinned and that's why all of this tragedy had come into his life, God shows up at the end of the book to remind Job, because he was in danger of forgetting, that I'm God and you're not. That you're not going to understand the reason for everything that I do and I don't owe you an explanation for everything that I do. And that's the main point of the book of Job is just to put man in his place when he tries to talk about things that go beyond man's understanding and knowledge. And there are things that go beyond our understanding and knowledge. And so God rebukes Job at the close of the book, and part of that rebuke is here in chapter 41, verse 11. God says this, Who has first given to me that I should repay him? Whatever is under the whole heaven is mine. 
So throughout the chapters, God has demonstrated his power, his glory in creating Leviathan, creating Behemoth, and creating Orion and the stars, and being in control of the weather, and providing food for all of the wild animals, and guiding the flight of the birds and the eagles. And God has gone through and he's, he's recounted all the things that he is able to do, and judging the wicked and lifting up the humble that, that man is not able to do. All of the wisdom and the knowledge of God in creation and in the governance of his creation. And here, God adds to his unique deity is that he is the one who has never had to repay anyone. God stands in no one's debt. God is debtor to none. There's no one who has given anything to God and it's like, oh God, you owe me one because of you know, what I did for you. When the people of Israel were dedicating the temple, one of the most glorious buildings that had ever been built on the earth with the gold and the silver that, that they set aside that David had been used to accumulate for Solomon and then the wisdom that was there to, to build this, this glorious temple in Jerusalem, I really wish I could have seen it. But when they were doing that, David and Solomon, they were very wise to recognize that Everything that the people had given, all of the silver, all of the gold, all of the skill, all of the fabrics, all of the work, that all of that had first been given by God to the people. That it was all His to begin with, and they weren't giving God anything that He didn't already own. It's good for us to remember that. What have you done for God? What have you given to God? Only whatever He has given to you so that you can give it back. God doesn't owe you anything. God gives you everything. And if you want to give it back to God, then you're welcome to do so. But don't think that you're doing God any favors. You're not putting God in your debt. He doesn't owe you for what you have done. And everything you give to Him, you're just giving Him back what is His. He says, whatever is under the whole heaven is mine. All the islands, all the farmland, all the lakes, all the clouds, all the life, the plants, the animals, the food, all the seed, everything that is in the whole earth is his. He made it. It belongs to him. Everything you have belongs to God. What do you have that God didn't make? What do you have that God didn't give to you? Knowledge and wisdom. Whatever you have, it's from God. You didn't make it. You didn't create it. God has given that to you as well. Come back to Romans chapter 11. Let's take a look at verse 36. Romans 11, 36 has this, this wonderful statement that reiterates what Paul has been talking about in verses 33 to 35. For from him and through him and to him are all things. From him, through him, to him are all things. You've never given a gift to God that God has to pay you back for. You don't understand the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. You haven't searched out the depths and the bottom of these things. From him and through him and to him 
are all things. I love how the writer of Hebrews just throws this in when he's thinking about God. And he writes in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 10. You don't have to turn there, but listen to what he writes and how he writes. He says, For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. So he's talking about God and God's actions. He, he just wants to make mention as an aside that from him and by him all things exist. You have to keep that in mind. When you think about God, think about him as from whom and through whom and to whom are all things. You keep that in your heart and in your mind and, and you will be a worshiper of God in spirit and in truth. Don't have small thoughts of God. Expand your thoughts of God. Listen to what one commentator said. He said, God is of another order of being than the human nations. You know, we talked about fear earlier in the service, that people can control you if they know what you fear. And the nations can control you if they can tap into your fears. But God is of another order of being than the human nations. He is not merely greater than they, as the gods were considered to be. Rather, the nations are not on the same plane of existence that he is. I like that. It's not that they're on the same plane and he's just higher. God is on a just different plane of existence altogether. This radical discontinuity between the human and the divine is the central concept that distinguishes Old Testament religion and its daughters, Judaism, Christianity, and Islam, from all others. It's at the heart of the Western worldview. And if surrendered, if you surrender this radical discontinuity between the human and the divine, it will plunge us back into the darkest of dark ages. Do you wonder why there's so much intellectual darkness in our society? I think Oswald put his finger on it right there. It's because the radical discontinuity between the human and the divine has been forgotten. And that is plunging us back into the darkest of the dark ages. Now, when we think about Romans 11, 33 to 36, let's take a moment in our minds to just go back and summarize what has led Paul to this outburst of praise to the unsearchable, all-wise God. In the previous chapters, he's been talking about the marvel of how God brings good out of evil. We've been talking about this very recently. That Israel committed great evil in crucifying Christ and persecuting the apostles and rejecting God's grace. But through that great evil, God was able to bring tremendous good, which you are experiencing now sitting here as Gentiles who have lived and existed and heard the gospel because of Israel's rejection. If Israel had not rejected the gospel, the kingdom of God would have come. You never would have been born. The Gentiles never would have been saved. And that would have been the wrapping up of history as the prophets had predicted. But the great evil that was done, God brought tremendous good out of it. And everyone wants to question God. Everyone wants to attack God and say, God, I don't like all this evil. I don't like all this suffering. I don't like that you allowed this and you allowed that. How could that be a part of your plan for my life, for our world? And everyone wants to question God and be an advisor to God and say, God, yeah, you've done a lot of good things, but it would have been a lot better if you would have done this. It would have been a lot better if you hadn't allowed that. 
And God says, you have no idea what I'm doing. You have no idea the good that I'm able to bring out of the things that you say I shouldn't have allowed to happen. And as Paul is filled with that joy in the salvation of the Gentiles, even out of the great evil of the people of Israel's unbelief, he just pours out this praise to the wisdom and knowledge of God, unsearchable in his judgments, inscrutable in his ways. Now this isn't to say that we shouldn't try to find out as much as we can about God's ways and judgments. You know, we live in a postmodern time where most people would take a, a passage like this and say, you know, God's ways are unsearchable and inscrutable, so, so just live in the mystery and, and embrace the mystery and, and don't try to answer questions and don't, don't be so doctrinal and, and objective and, and just experience God and be in wonder and awe. And yeah, you should experience God and be in wonder and awe. But that is based on the theology. The theology takes you as far as you can go and we don't denigrate the truth because it's unsearchable. We search out as much as we can. We gain as much as we can. And we enjoy as much of the truth as we can. But even so, we recognize how small our knowledge is and how much more there is for us to learn and discover as Paul sets the example for us. Paul is no postmodernist. He's not denigrating the importance of truth and doctrine. No, he's got that and he's got the wonder together. Now, Paul hasn't just been dealing with the Israel question, but I think as we read about Paul's praise here, as I said, it's summing up the whole letter. So let's take a, a quick look at the theology of Romans chapter 1, verses 16 through Romans chapter 11, verse 32. And when you're taking a, a big picture look, you can't enjoy all the details that you can when you're up close and examining these doctrines one by one. But as you're flying over the doctrinal truths that are here, you're able to appreciate from a different perspective the wonderful theology of this letter. Number one, universal sinfulness. That yes, part of what brings glory and honor to God is an understanding of the nature of sin. When you understand the nature of sin, brothers and sisters, then you will understand how wonderful it is that God is sinless, that there's no darkness in Him. God is light, and in Him is no darkness at all. And so the study of sin, the study of homartiology, is actually one of the best studies that you can undertake in order to learn how to glorify and honor God because God will be loved by the one who hates sin the way that sin deserves to be hated. And so Paul lays out the sinfulness of sin there at the beginning of this letter, not only to show us our need for salvation, but also to show us the glory of the God who is without sin. We don't love mankind in contradistinction to loving God, but we recognize that, that God is the one who is perfect and pure and holy, while mankind are the ones who are full of darkness, and we are the ones who need to be saved. We're not here to save God. God is here to save us. And then number two, the vicarious atonement is what is built then upon the universal sinfulness of mankind. That God has a way to save those who are lost in darkness and in sin. For those who are completely corrupted, 
How do you save something that is completely corrupted? Normally what you have to do is you just throw it away and start over with something new. And you know what? In a sense, that's what God does. Because God causes us to be born again through faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And, and the sins that we've committed, that we've piled up high to the heavens against God, there is atonement for sin. We say it's a vicarious atonement because the atonement is accomplished by the substitutionary sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And when you think about the sinfulness of mankind and you think about the power and the wisdom of God in saving mankind from his sin by the atonement that is in the blood of Jesus Christ, well, I hope you never lose the wonder of that. I hope that that is a truth that will always cause you to feel like there is depth in the truth of the gospel that you have not yet explored or understood or appreciated. And then number three, this atonement of Christ is brought to us by faith. And marvel at the wisdom of God. Think about the knowledge of God that He has not only the sacrifice, but the perfect way of making that sacrifice effective of communicating the virtue of Christ's death to you. How are you, as a sinner, going to benefit by the death of Jesus Christ? And it's by faith. This is perfect. This is amazing. Faith is the gaze of the soul away from itself and to the Savior. And faith has this power to transform. As we gaze at Christ... We become like Him. So not only are we experiencing justification by faith, but then our whole life is by faith. And we get this new life, this sanctified life, by gazing at Jesus Christ. And it's by glorifying Him, by focusing on Him, that not only our sins are taken care of, our guilt of our sins, but also the power of sin in our life so that we are able to live in this newness of life. Universal sinfulness, the vicarious atonement in the blood of Christ, justification by faith, and the new life. And that is just the first few chapters of this amazing book. Paul goes on and describes in the most loved chapter, perhaps in the whole letter, perhaps in all of Paul's letters, perhaps in all the Bible, Romans chapter 8, the Holy Spirit chapter, about how not only has God solved the sin problem, not only has He caused us to be born again, but He's poured out the Holy Spirit. The Spirit searches all things, even the depths of God. And God is revealed to us by the Holy Spirit. As Paul exalted in the Spirit, then he also in the same chapter exalted in the future glory that is before us as believers. And as Paul's going from one doctrine to the next and he's exploring it and he's unfolding it, you can sense why this has been building in him. This doxology has been building up with him throughout the whole letter. And then in Romans 9-11, through 11, culminating in Israel's future salvation, I mean, there's just nothing not to rejoice in. Usually when you get something, you have to focus on its good and not focus on its negatives if you're going to enjoy it because everything has its negatives, right? You get a new present and you want to focus on the good things about the presents that you've gotten and not focus on the negatives. But as Paul's going through and talking about the gift of God in Christ Jesus, there's no negatives. There's nothing that could even distract as a downside. It's just 
positive after positive, blessing after blessing, good thing after good thing. And the only things that are negative that he has to deal with in the letter are the misunderstandings of the gospel. When somebody would say, well, if what you're saying is true, Paul, then, then this or that. And Paul would say, no, 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 that's a, that's a wrong conclusion. You're way off on that. So the only negatives he's had to deal with throughout the letter are mankind's misunderstandings of the grace of God. And as Paul thinks about the grace of God itself, there's nothing but joy. Unmixed joy. Unmixed joy. You know, we all have joy, but it's usually mixed, right? But when you're beholding Christ, when you're glorifying God, you have unmixed joy. That's why the Bible command is to rejoice in the Lord always. There's one person that you can rejoice in always. One person who has nothing wrong with him, who has no cause for sorrow in who he is and what he has done. There's a lot of sorrow in the world. There's a lot of pain in the world. God has not caused any of that in the sense that I'm talking about here but that God is a source of blessing. Sin, evil, death, it does not come from God. He is light, and in Him is no darkness at all. As we bring this to a conclusion and prepare for our final song, I'd like to just read some verses that are a list I've put together for you of how God is just wonderful. God is wonderful. And I think that would make a, a wonderful sermon in and of itself. God is wonderful. And when I talk about wonderful, I mean that he fills you with wonder. That you can't understand how amazing and good he is. Listen to what the Bible says. You've got a whole doctrine on the wonderfulness of God. There's a, there's a great attribute of God. He's wonderful. Jeremiah 23, verse 18. Who among them has stood in the counsel of the Lord to see and hear his word? Or who has paid attention to his word and listened? Job 42, verse 3. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. That was Job's confession. Earlier in the book of Job, we have, If you are righteous, what do you give to him? Or what does he receive from your hand? I like what the book of Proverbs has to say, putting us in our proper place. Proverbs chapter 30. These three things are too wonderful for me, four that I do not understand. And here is four things that the wise man did not understand. The way of an eagle in the sky, the way of a serpent on a rock, the way of a ship on the high seas, and the way of a man with a virgin. Uh, Very interesting to think about those things, but those things are just the very outskirts of God's ways. And God himself is far more wonderful than the way of an eagle in the sky or the way of a serpent on a rock. You say, how do do they do that? How does does the snake move like that? How does the the eagle fly like that? It's, It's too wonderful for us to understand. Well, that's just the whispers of God's ways, just something that he puts out there to show us how little we understand. Listen to what God said in Judges chapter 13, verse 8. The angel of the Lord said to him, Why do you ask my name, seeing that it is wonderful? God's name is wonderful. You say, well, God, what's your name? What should we call you? He says, why bother asking? You can't understand my name. My name is too wonderful for you. Like, wow, that is so cool. 
Psalms. Psalm 40, verse 5. You have multiplied, O Lord my God, your wondrous deeds and your thoughts toward us. None can compare with you. I will proclaim and tell of them, yet they are more than can be told. Yeah, I'm going to keep on teaching the Bible, but it's more than I can tell. I'm going to keep on teaching you good doctrine, but the truth is more wonderful than I will ever be able to explain. Psalm 92, verse 5 says, How great are your works, O Lord! Your thoughts are very deep. And Psalm 71, verse 5, My mouth will tell of your righteous acts, of your deeds of salvation all the day, for their number is past my knowledge. And Isaiah, this also comes from the Lord of hosts. He is wonderful in counsel and excellent in wisdom. And a little bit later in Isaiah, he writes, Therefore, behold, I will again do wonderful things with this people, with wonder upon wonder, and the wisdom of their wise men shall perish, and the discernment of their discerning men shall be hidden. And Paul, feeling his own insufficiency in light of the wonderful truths with which he was entrusted, he said, To one person we are a fragrance from death to death, to another a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? A little bit later, he gives thanks to God in this way, God has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. And then finally, I'd like to share with you what Peter wrote, 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 16. As Paul does in all his letters when he speaks of these matters, there are some things in Paul's letters that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and the unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. There's a depth in God's word. There's a depth in what Paul is writing to us here in Romans 1 through 11. That doesn't give us any excuse for distorting them. That doesn't give us any excuse for not understanding them. We don't want to be destroyed by lack of knowledge, but instead we want to understand everything that God has given to us while understanding it, recognizing that it goes beyond our understanding. Bow your heads with me for a word of prayer. God, great and amazing are all of your deeds towards us. Just and true are your ways. You are the king of the nations, existing on a whole other plane from your creation. Who will not fear you, O Lord? Who will not give glory to your name? We confess, you alone are holy. All the nations will come, O Lord, and worship before you and your Son, Jesus Christ, for your righteous acts have been revealed. We give you thanks for it in Christ's name. Amen.